Okay, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1. Last Sunday we finished Luke, and this Sunday we finally start the Acts of the Apostles. I was tempted to title this message, I Can't Believe It's Not Luke, but I didn't do it. (laughs) But I must admit, Acts is not my forte. It's definitely not my strength as far as the Bible is concerned, but we know God is in the business of strengthening us in our weak areas to his glory. So hopefully we can have fun going through this, uh, this book together. When I was in school, I was taught when elucidating a book, you want to cover the following questions. Who, what, where, when, how, and why. So I want to do that because I think it really helps us to get a foundation, a background of what we're looking at here. Who wrote the book of Acts? Uh, Acts is Dr. Luke's second work after his namesake, Luke. And we'll see that he was part of the, a lot of these journeys where he often references we or us with him involved in what was going on. Uh, Luke was a friend and traveling companion to Paul, and conversely, we see in Paul's works that he mentions Dr. Luke. Though Luke was a physician and probably a Greek convert to Christianity, you get a, a sense that he's humble. He's not focused on himself. And that really is good, and it comes into play. It's like a litmus test for the whole gifts of the Holy Spirit, when we get into that, uh, we see that really if, if you're glorifying God, then you know, that gives more credence to these gifts being actual than somebody glorifying themselves, and we'll get into that. Uh, how? Well, Luke records groundbreaking church history via first-hand account and also interviewing of witnesses. And when was it written? Most Bible scholars put this at A.D. 63 because he doesn't mention some notable events such as Paul's trial and the destruction of Jerusalem, which came shortly thereafter. thereafter. Why was it written? Uh, Probably several reasons. Number one, it was a historical work. We see detail in the book of Acts. As we see it, there's detail. There's a lot of officials named, actual Roman officials who lived at the time. We see geography, and we also see important historical events named. The second reason is evangelistic or charismatic, uh, which means that Acts was an appropriate extension of the Great Commission and the life of the disciples. And also, probably the most important reason, because God wanted him to write it. That's always the best reason for somebody to do something. Uh, Certainly, he wrote it for generations of Christians to come to be able to benefit from this book. Now, it's quite possible as we go into, he, he speaks about Theophilus again, which you also see in Luke Uh, the first work. He speaks of him as most excellent Theophilus uh, in the first book. Um, And we understand that if most excellent was before your name, it usually meant that you were a high-ranking, some type of uh, notable government official. So it's quite possible that Luke wrote this, not very probable, but it's possible he wrote it just to give this guy Theophilus the understanding of what the Christian faith was all about, maybe as a witnessing tool or to strengthen his faith kind of goes to show you that even if it was one person, uh, God is there for us. You know, he, if one person was on the earth, he would, Jesus would have still died for our sins. So, and the question is what? The next question, what does it mean? The word acts in the Greek is praxase, which was a word used in Greek literature to summarize outstanding accomplishments of certain men and women. Now, Jesus was the original outstanding man And next we see that Jesus' qualities come out in his followers. And hopefully we see that in our lives too. 
Now, sometimes we look at the Bible and we say, gee, that was written a long time ago. It's a great historical work. These guys were super men, super apostles. But, you know, it, it really has an application for our lives, too. The proxase of these men. Um, in our lives, if we've changed, if somebody says, wow, you're, you can handle stress very well, or, you know, people make fun of you and you take it well, or, uh, you know, you don't lose your temper, uh, that's an accomplishment, or really, to Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' original accomplishments, we take on his character as followers of Christ. And where did Acts take place? Well, as the expression goes, they were all over the map. And they were literally all over the map, as we'll see, and that was the point, to spread the gospel to the furthest corners of the, of the earth. Acts is about a few things, three things. One is transformation. We see followers of Jesus, uh, when he was crucified, they were dejected. Then they became unstoppable witnesses due to the transforming power of the resurrected Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Two, we're going to learn about the person of the Holy Spirit. And I believe the Holy Spirit is arguably the least understood of all three persons of the Godhood, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I think the biggest misconceptions among believers and cult groups alike is really centered around the Holy Spirit. We're going to see what his role is. And also, uh, again, you, you see in the Old Testament, you see the continuity of thought between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, you had the Father really took preeminence. You had the, his, his guiding of the children of Israel, his giving of the law, his messianic prophecies. We, we tend to attribute, oh, it's Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, Psalm of David, but all these prophecies weren't man's prophecies. They were God's prophecies given to man to record. So you see the father involved in messianic prophecies. Then the son comes, uh, you know, he, he comes to the earth and we see that he fulfills the father's prophecies, right? He dies a substitutionary death. He rises again and he ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. Now we have the Holy Spirit. What does he do? You know, you have the, what the father's role is. You have the son's role is what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, Jesus could only send him full time, so to speak, when Jesus' own presence was removed from the earth. And we see that all through the Gospel of John. He says, when I, I have to go, because when I go, I, I leave you the Holy Spirit, and then he'll take over from there. So what does the Holy Spirit do primarily? Well, let me read two verses in John 15, 26 and 27. John 15, 26 and 27. Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. That's his role. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit testifying of himself, the same word is used when he tells his disciples to be witnesses in a different form in the Greek, witnesses to all the earth. So it's pretty neat. The Holy Spirit's job is to point back to Jesus. That's what he does. That's what his focus is. And we as Christians, when we follow God's will, we are in harmony with what the Holy Spirit does. We also testify of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit gives us power to do these things. Okay, so... Acts is basically the link between Christ's physical life on the earth, which we saw in Luke, and his resurrected life through 
the church. Now we can go into chapter 1. Are you excited? Starting with verse 1 in Acts 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witness to, witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, so again, Luke starts out, the first chapter, as he does in, in Luke with Acts here, addressing Theophilus. Now, whether Theophilus was a publisher or a Roman official, and people have debate on that, and that's fine, he certainly was a friend of the church, and he was a patron helping to disseminate these accounts in some way. So Luke here makes the delineation now between Luke and Acts. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus is pointing forward to the baptism of the Holy Spirit which we see more in Acts chapter 2, which we'll get into next Sunday. And there's Old Testament references in Joel 2, Ezekiel 36, and Isaiah 44. Now, what we need to mention here is in John 20, 22, okay? I'll just read that one verse. Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to see how there's different manifestations of the Holy Spirit. What it does appear is after the resurrection and just before Jesus is, is to go, that people who were believers would receive the Holy Spirit. However, we are also pointed to a, a portion in uh, Luke, or Acts chapter 2, which speaks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the word baptism... Baptism in the Greek implies a complete immersion, okay, which is, is different. So we see, and again, through Acts, we're going to see great manifestations of the Holy Spirit, um, some through baptism, immersion, some through uh, filling for a time, uh, some through sealing, some through coming upon. Uh, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, can be quenched. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. This is where we see that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's is referred to as he, because you, you can't lie to an inanimate object. The Holy Spirit teaches. You can only be, you know, so you, you see these different manifestations. And in verse 6, we see that before Jesus' ascension, Luke records one particular question asked of him prior to his departing by the disciples. Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom? Honestly, if I was there and they didn't ask, I would have asked. Okay? And you've got to look at the background here. Jesus is crucified. He's buried. He has this amazing resurrection. He has a 40-day glorification. He has this great ministry on the earth for 40 days. So if you're one of the disciples, you're thinking after he's resurrected, 
Clap your hands. Here we go. Onward, Christian soldier. This is going to be great. He's going to restore the kingdom now, right? I mean, what else would you think at that point in time? But instead, they're all excited. He's resurrected. They're talking to him. It's been 40 days. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts being ascended into heaven. I could picture them looking up at him going, I I could still see him, but he looks real small, real small. Where's he going? How anticlimactic that was, right? And in addition to that, he tells them one of the last things he says to them is his most trusted uh, companions is it's not for them to know when he's going to come back and conquer and restore the kingdom on earth. Now, this becomes really a head scratcher until we get to verse 8. In verse 7, very important too, he says to them, it is not for you to know times or season which the Father has put in his own authority. So the question is, why do still so many people set dates? You know, for 2,000 years, people have been setting dates, whether it's actually they thought at the end of the first millennia, uh, millennium that Jesus might have come back. 2,000, they thought he might have come back. People are, are setting dates for everything. You know, Y2K, the whole deal. You could just look at the gamut. But really, setting a date goes against Scripture. If you look at the Jehovah Witness organization, they've set dates in 1914, 1918, 1925, and 1975. They got smart, I guess, in 1975 because when Jesus didn't come back, they said, well, he came back invisibly. That really was their answer because obviously he didn't come back. Um, I mentioned Harold Camping. He's got three basic books on the end times, dates of 1988, 1994 and 2011 he did the same thing when jesus didn't come back in 94 he said well okay it's not for jesus to come back but it's the end of the church age and nobody could get saved in a church anymore now see that's cheating you know when i was in school that's cheating that's like taking a test and you get the wrong answer and you ask the teacher can i change the answer you know you can't change the answer you don't do that stuff with prophecy god's prophets had to be right 100 percent of the time according to the old testament otherwise they'd be stoned That certainly was a cure for false prophecy. But, you know, and we can laugh about it. You know, these people, they start with a date, and then when it doesn't come to pass, they change the date, or they change the meaning of the date. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is that if you are part of an organization uh, where it's 1918 and you think that's the date, well, what do you do? The loyal followers of the Jehovah Witnesses sold their homes, sold their cars, gave all the money to the church, And the night before, they stood staring at the sky, and Jesus didn't come back. Now they're poor. Now they're humiliated. And we're talking millions of people. So it's not just bad because it goes against God's word, but it's bad because it's it's an awful thing to do to your followers. And and, uh, quite frankly, it illegitimizes prophecy. Now, it's different to say all the indicators in Scripture show that there's a good chance, based on the events that are going on, that we're probably in the end times, but... It's, it's, it's a good time to get our act together as a church and individuals, uh, and that's different. You know, you're not setting dates. You're just saying, you know, the Lord could come back at any moment. Let's be prepared because Jesus tells us to be prepared. And what we see in, in Acts is what we're supposed to do in that interim between Jesus' ascension and his return, and it doesn't include date setting. In verse 8, So Jesus says to them, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, Jerusalem was the spiritual hub ordained by God. So he wanted them to go to Jerusalem and wait there. What better place to start a movement that would reach to the farthest corners of the globe than starting in Jerusalem? 
the Holy Spirit and power. People may ask, and this is great when we get into the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is really cool stuff. With the advent of the Holy Spirit, all these great gifts would come upon the people. What can I get from the Holy Spirit? Well, let's see. There's tongues. There's miracles. There's prophecy. There's healing. All great stuff. But it also all depends. What do you want the power for? Do we want it to glorify God or do we want it to make ourselves glorified? There's um, some organizations where a certain person in the church has all these titles. This person's the designated healer. There's the designated tongues person. They do everything. It's like super Christian. But that's not what the gifts of the Spirit are for. The, the Bible says they're to be distributed severally as the Holy Spirit wills, and they're to edify the church, and they're to testify of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' physical pre- presence, we see, gives way to the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes. Now, this kind of reminds me of in the Old Testament, uh, when the, the, the temple was built and they had the Holy of Holies and uh, you know, the Shekinah glory, God's physical presence would actually come into that portion of the temple and reside there on top of the mercy seat. And it was a point in time where the Bible talks about God's physical presence. He was so disturbed with the religious system at the time that the Shekinah glory, they actually could see it depart. It left and it didn't come back. So this is kind of neat because it reminds me of that glory that comes back in the form of the Holy Spirit. But instead of being on the Holy of Holies once a year for the high priest to come in and sprinkle the blood and it to be accepted, the sacrifice, this glory now of God comes in to Jerusalem and comes upon us in a more personal way. The Bible says we're, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So this is pretty neat how you, you see the, the change happening, right? But this should teach us this. God wants us to be his witnesses. He wants us to tell the world what he's done for us and what he's done through us. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be forced to canvas the neighborhood and knock on people's doors and do it as a work system because there's a difference between evangelism and example. Not everyone has the gift of evangelism, but everyone can be an example. And through your example, you are being evangelistic, you see? Lastly, our life should be represented a representation of a godly life. As the saying goes, if we're not producing a good product at home, let's not export it, right? Verse 9. It says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is very important. And what's amazing is how God's word entirely combats false doctrine. What's really neat is, is a pastor, um, I have a lot of people that send me things through the church or you know, through email or whatever, and uh, one of the things that I've gotten a lot is this movement, this man who claims to be Jesus Christ reincarnated. And I just looked at the, the material for months, and I'm thinking, when can I use that in a service? Well, now's the time. So I'm going to read it to you. It says, Christians protest event in Orlando. Orlando police officers stood guard around the Lake Eola Amphitheater as Dr. Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda, 61, arrived in the city Saturday. Miranda, who has been banned from three countries, told Local 6 news cameras and a cheering crowd that he was Jesus Christ reincarnated. His followers believe that Miranda's life and his teachings replace 
those of Jesus of Nazareth, local sixes, uh, Jamie Gorola said. They believe that Jesus is going to come from the sky. This is great. They believe. They, the Christians who are protesting. What do they, why do they believe that? Because the Bible says that that's going to happen uh, 2,000 years ago. It said it was going to happen that way. But that is not the way he is going to come. He is here, Gorola said. That's interesting because Matthew 24, 23, Jesus said this very thing would happen. He said, if they say, look, here is the Christ, or there, there is the Christ, don't believe it. And you might say, well, why? Because the answer is it's going to be obvious. No one's going to have to say to you, hey, you you missed it, but Jesus is over there in Miami. But you missed it. Come over and check it out. It's true. It's going to be obvious, Jesus said, to the unbelievers and to the believers alike. Right. Miranda said millions of people world, worldwide have tattooed their bodies with 666 in recognition that the second coming of Christ has taken place, according to the report. OK, from my understanding, 666 was the number of the beast. It was a bad number. Um, I have it proudly on my hand, the believer told local six is Jamie Garola. It is easier when they shake my hand. It is easier for them to ask. I am very proud to show it as a sign of love. Miranda said he is known as God in at least 30 countries. Well, there's some humor in it, but the sad part about it is that over the last 2,000 years, I would say probably millions of people have been swallowed up by these types of cults. Hey, don't worry about what the Bible says. That's old news. Believe me, I've got something new to show you. Well, Jesus will come back, obviously. Every eye shall see, the Bible says. It also says he'll be on the clouds of the air. Scripture references, Revelation 1, 7, Matthew 24, 30, Matthew 26, 64. And specifically, when he comes back in judgment, it'll be on the Mount of Olives in Zechariah 14, verse 4. And even for his believers, his followers, we won't be caught unaware. We won't miss it. Paul specifically in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 wrote this so he would comfort the believers. He says it twice in in, uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, comfort the believers with these words. They were concerned that they might have missed the coming of Christ. And Paul explains to them in both of these chapters that you didn't miss it. This is the way he's going to come back. You can't miss it. So unless Jose Miranda came back on a cloud, which he's not claiming, he's definitely a false messiah. And it's not popular to say that, is it? Well, that one's a false messiah. But, you know, it's just what the scripture says. Whether it was Jude or Paul or Jesus or Peter, they all told us to contend for the faith and not to let this stuff slip by, not to let people be deceived. Paul was constantly battling false teachers in the church. And he said, after my departure, savage wolves will come in from among the flock within the church and still try to damage the sheep through this kind of stuff. So it's important that we know it. So a lot of these organizations, they make a date or they say something bizarre. And when Jesus doesn't come back, they have to cover it up with a lie and say, well, he came back secretly. Uh, Actually, there's a a brother in the church. He's an usher. His name is Paul. He has a website. It's called, uh, it's actually, you could spell it out. It's all lowercase, jehovahswitnessrevealed.com. And it's very good. I actually wrote an article about the Trinity and posted it on there. But it's, it's very informative. Um, in verse 11, 
the angel says to them, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And I think that's a subtle rebuke. Get busy doing your father's will. I mean, if it was me again, if I was there, I, were, I certainly would have made all the mistakes that these guys made and then some. Uh, so what happened was they're staring up at Jesus as he's being ascended into heaven. And, you know, that's all they can focus on. Wait, our Messiah, he's leaving. What's going on here? So the angel's trying to redirect their attention and saying, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This is the way he's going to come back. Now, in, a, in essence, go, go and do your father's will. And I enjoy prophecy, too, when we're in prophecy. Uh, I did a whole thing on the screen about the second coming. It's very fascinating. But there's so much more in the Bible than just prophecy. We need to be more concerned with how to live our lives and how to be obedient until the Lord returns than just being focused on the Lord returning. There's a lot that happens in between that, you see. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In verse 12, of course, this is not Judas Iscariot. He already hanged himself. This is uh, Judas, which in other scriptures he's known as Thaddeus or Lebius. Judas is a, was a common name. It comes from Judah uh, at the time, was the, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it would have been a popular name because people would have named their Jewish sons after the most notable people in the Old Testament. It would have been as common today in our society as my name, Joe, right? In verse 14, what are they doing while waiting for God's instructions? What are the disciples doing? Are they watching TV? Are they playing Xbox? Are they watching their stocks go up and down and up and down, right? They're not. They're, they're in prayer and they're in supplication. They're in prayer and supplication. And the question is, is that how we wait on God? And I love to use the example of a, um, a radio. You know, if you're trying to get a radio station to come in, you've got all these, these things in the airwaves. As, as we stand here, there's, there's, you know, there's signals going through the air. And when you try to tune on to a certain station, you turn the dial to exactly the frequency that you want, and it picks up that frequency, and now you're in tune to that frequency, right? And to me, looking at this is we're tuning ourselves into God's frequency, when we're, you know, we're called as Christians, we're called to do certain things, and when we're in prayer and supplication, we're on the right frequency. It also see, we also see two significant people never spoken of again. We'll see that in Acts. Uh, Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, and Matthias. And we're going to go into that later, which is the one that was chosen to replace Judas. Verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, although the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, 
Let his habitation be desolate, and let no one live in it. Let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed too, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen, to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. I can tell you, one thing really stands out in my mind that I didn't even put in my notes. I didn't even think about until I read it, and it just hit me. Judas was called. He was chosen by Jesus. He was in ministry. He, was, he saw everything that Jesus did. He partook in the two-by-two. Two. And Judas relinquished that. Judas did something very awful, and he disqualified himself. And you know what? That's another reason why we need to always be looking at God and not man. Because we don't know. And it, it happens. People, you know what it is? Ministers, people in ministry are a tangible representation of what's in the Bible and a godly life. But we're just human beings. So I would just encourage you all, especially looking at this, there were some people who probably looked up to Judas. I mean, he was with Jesus. And if they couldn't get to Jesus, they probably went to some of the disciples. So I would encourage you all, always put your focus on God and not man. Never focus on man. So Judas Iscariot. What's interesting here is uh, there was 120 disciples at this point in time in this room. Wow, that's a lot of people. It goes from zero to after the crucifixion to 120, right? There must have been a lot going on in those 40 days, including the 500 that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 15. But we see the fate of Judas Iscariot in detail. Matthew says he hanged himself. Well, Luke kind of gives a little bit more kind of gory details here. And being a physician, you see, even through the Gospel of Luke, he, he puts it from his own flavor, from his own perspective as a physician. So he kind of gives us a little bit more detail here. So one says he hanged himself. One says he, he fell and his guts, his entrails gushed out. Is there a contradiction? The answer is no. G Judas hung himself. And either the rope broke or the branch broke or the weight of his body separated his neck from his body after decomposing in the hot sun. These are some of the choices that you have. And just to, to tell you what happens, so you really get convinced, the moment you die, your immune system just shuts off. It's done, because you're dead. So all those little microbes that live in your intestines and your guts and on your skin and everything, they're not held in check anymore. It becomes a free meal. So you become their meal. And when they feast on you, they release gases, and they distend especially the, the abdomen area. So what probably happened was from being decomposed, his gut split, you know, his skin split open, and everything just gushed out from the pressurization. Was that too gross for you? <laughs> well, I've got to explain it. You know, Luke started it. I'm just finishing it. <laughs> Verse 20, 20 through 21. So Peter now quotes the book of Psalms. He says, let his habitation be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Now Peter is making the case for replacing Judas among the 12 and he quotes Psalm 109, which is known as a Psalm of David, the song of the slander. If you go to it, you'll see it. Now follow me. When we read the book of Acts, now I'm going to have some things where I'm going to have an opinion on something. 
And I'm not making doctrine, okay? It's just my opinion based on what I'm reading in the Scripture. Um, I'm not going to make any doctrine that's vague because I don't do that. It's wrong. This is God's Word. I handle it carefully. But I'm going to give you an opinion on something that I see in this portion of Scripture. And follow me. Uh, Acts is is a history of the early church. And not only does Acts record largely the successes of the church, it also records some of the failures or some of the um, things that they could have done better and and hopefully seek to correct. But I believe, in my opinion, is that Peter had the right idea, but he might have acted too quickly. And I'm going to actually hit on that a little bit later at the end. For the following reasons. Matthias, number one, Matthias is never heard from again after they used him to replace Judas, okay? Now, there had to be 12 because the Bible consistently, repeatedly speaks about the 12 apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Judas um, personally disqualified himself, so now we're down to 11. Jesus personally chose the 12, including Judas, Judas, and, and again, Judas disqualified himself. Jesus did not choose Matthias personally, but we see later that Jesus, in Acts chapter 9, chooses somebody else who calls himself an apostle out of due time, and that's Paul. And he uses Paul to write the majority of the New Testament. And even though Paul wasn't with them from the beginning, it's obvious through his dealings with the resurrected Christ that Jesus brings him up to speed on the history and the doctrine because Paul, again, wrote half the New Testament. The other thing is, you know, casting of lots. was That was the last time it was used here. Uh, casting of lots is not used anymore. It's what's used is the seeking of the Holy Spirit, right? So the question is, was, was Peter being impetuous? Should he have waited for Pentecost to be immersed by, through, with the Holy Spirit and then try to make this decision? Um, you know, who knows? Uh, it's just, again, speculation. And some of you may believe Matthias was the legitimate choice, and that's fine, too. You may have good reasons for that. But I think the hardest thing to do for any of us as, as God's people is to make decisions in our lives and be sure that it's God's will. Okay, I want to make these two points before we close. As God's people, the hardest thing for us to do is to make a decision and make sure that that decision is within God's will. Okay, Because we're followers of Christ. We want to do the right thing. We want to please God. We don't just want to go off half-cocked and make decisions and they turn out to be foolish decisions. So two things often happen here. One, we say to God, okay, God, here's your two choices. Pick one, (laughs) the A or B. This is what I need answered. Pick one of these choices. And the funny thing is in Joshua 5, when Joshua is met by the commander of the Lord's army, which many think is a pre-incarnate Christ, okay, uh, he's got the drawn sword, and Joshua says to him, are you for us or are you for our enemies? You've got two choices. (laughs) Are you for us? or for our enemies. The commander of the Lord's army answers him and says, no, wait a minute, I asked you if you were for us or you were for our enemies. No, but as the commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. And he gives him instructions. So understand that when we give God limited choices, God's answer for us may be outside the realm of your choices. God, here's A or B, or here's A, B, or C. Well, God may say, there's Z. You didn't see Z, but that's my choice for you. Okay, so understand that there's a possibility there. And we get frustrated sometimes. Well, I prayed on it, and I don't understand. It didn't work out. The other thing that we do is we give God a time limit. 
we say to the Lord, okay, Lord, I'm open to any decision that you have, and I know I should have come to you first, but I need an answer by tonight. Can you do that for me? So God's got a time limit now, and he's, he's, you got the egg timer, you turn it upside down, go, God, let's go, get me an answer here. And God doesn't work that way. He may have had one of these choices for you, but it may, the time frame may have been outside what you thought the time frame should be. God may be doing something in you. He may be wanting to give you something good, but you can't handle it right now. And he's trying to work in you and work in you, and it may come months or years down the road. So the second thing that I'd like to say is God's answer for our life may come outside the realm of our time constraints. And that's two biggest things that we struggle with as believers, outside the realm of the choices that I want or outside the realm of my time constraints. So let's just keep that in mind. But the cool thing is, in the early part of Acts, we see the disciples transition from hearing directions from the lips of Jesus directly to now the transition goes to being guided by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't an easy transition, but it was, an, it was necessary nonetheless. And we can certainly take that and apply that to our own lives. As we go through this text, hopefully we will see how our relationship with the Holy Spirit uh, can, be, can be improved based on what God's standard is in the book of Acts. To the new believer, this should be very refreshing for you because it's an example of understanding your new faith and your relationship with God. And to us, some of us older believers, well, whose walks might have got a little rusty or a little dusty or in some cases a little crusty over time, it should also be refreshing as a breath of fresh air to see the moving of the Holy Spirit, the fresh moving of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these believers and apply it to our lives. But either way, the Spirit's leading is applicable for you no matter what stage you're in in your walk. Let's pray. To the new believer, this should be very 